0: Hello, and thank you very much for tuning in. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You're listening to J Root Radio, 97.5 FM. It's our weekly shear in the Parsha. As always, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here with you. And I believe we have some great learning and a great Sheer for you tonight. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me after the Sheer, In the week ahead, perhaps, just simply write me an email. My email address is director at jeln.org, director at jeln.org. I'm always happy to send you a printed version of either the Torah we'll cover tonight or maybe last year's year uh, in time for Shabbos by email, something you could print up and study up and read on your own. Just send me an email and I'm happy to add you to the list of thousands of beautiful Jewish people who receive it and sound smart at the Shabbos table every week. I'm happy to get that out to you. I'm often asked how you can access and listen to previous week's classes. Very simple. Just go to torahanytime.com and visit my page there on the speaker's page. My last name is Bregman, B-R-E-G-M-A-N. I have almost 300 classes up. Many are in the short and sweet series, about four, five, six, seven minutes each on different topics, and also full-length classes. On the Parsha, these Parsha classes and others. Also, if you go to the J Root Radio site, the Parsha classes are generally there. And it's good stuff. Um, It's great to be back in the New York area. I've been traveling a lot. I've been in Chicago. I've been in Boston. I've been in Toronto. I've been in St. Louis. A lot of places as of late. Spreading Torah, spreading authentic Yiddishkeit, and people are very happy to soak it up and uh, feed their souls with the good of Torah. And uh, I'm grateful for those travels. You should know, the rest of America is freezing as much or worse as here. So uh, let's just settle down in the New York area tonight, learn Gishmaka Torah, and get down to Parshish Tetzaveh. So let's do it. Now, Parshish Tetzaveh, here we go. We're in the book of Shemais, chapter 27, Verse 20. And the Pesach says, it starts out, and now you, this is Hashem speaking, and now you, the you is going on Moshe, shall command the children of Israel. Now Moshe Rabbeinu, he was first introduced to us in Sefer Shmais in the beginning of the book of Shemos. And from that time forward, Moshe's name appears on virtually every single page of the Torah. If you open a Chumash, he's there pretty much from when he's introduced to the end. We always find him. And uh, certainly almost in every... Every column of the Torah, the one notable exception from when we first meet Moshe to the end is Parshas Tetzaveh, this week's Torah portion. It's the only place in the Torah text other than the book of Devarim, which Moshe wrote in the first person and therefore his name's not mentioned that doesn't contain even one mention of Moshe's name. Why? Why does Parshas Tetzaveh omit Moshe's name? Now this anomaly, it's all the more curious if you stop and consider that both the birthday and the yard site of Moshe Rabbeinu is the 7th of Adar. The birthday, the birthday when he was born is the 7th of Adar. And the yard site, that means just the anniversary of the date of his death. They're both Zion Adar. How do I know it's the 7th of Adar? It's not my opinion. It's a Gemara Kedushan. at Aleph. And that's interesting because the Zion Adar is the date that always corresponds to the week in which this Parsha is read. We're in the month of Adar now. And Zion Adar always falls out a Parsha Tetzavay. Why? Kind of interesting. His birth date and his death date fall out on the Parsha every year. And the Parsha doesn't even mention his name. Interesting. Vas up with this. What is this about? How do we understand what's going on over here? So the Balaturim connect connects Moshe's missing name to a posik in the book of Shemais, where he didn't get to it yet in the Chumash, but we'll see. Chapter 32, verse 32, Moshe says to Hashem, That if Hashem would not forgive the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf, Moshe wished to be erased from the Torah. Now even though Hashem did ultimately forgive the Jewish people, there's an important chazal you have to know. It's a gemar in Makais. Alef amad alef, and Aleph Aleph. And and the Medrash in different places, tells us that the curse of a sage, even if it is undeserved or made conditionally, hiva'a, it will come to pass. If a chacham, if a sage makes a curse, it's deserved, even if it's not deserved, even made on a condition, a tanai, it's going to come to pass. So it says the Ba'laturim, that's why Moshe's name is missing. Although Moshe asked that his name be erased from the Torah, only, conditionally, if Hashem refused to forgive the Jewish people. Since he was a sage, an element of this conditional curse simply had to come to pass. So because he said, Macheni no Sifrachar, Hashem, erase me from your book from the Torah, says Balaturim, that's why Moshe's name is missing, and it came out over here in our parsha. That's a Balaturim. So now, we say it like this, if Moshe's name was destined to be erased, even in part why specifically in our parsha why here so the Vilna naguin and others want to say like this because this torah portion is invariably read at the time of moshe's yard site and that thus his yard site is when he passed away when he so to speak disappeared from the world therefore says the gain it's an appropriate time for him to disappear so to speak from the torah text that's why the gain says it comes out takah Specifically, Davka and Parsh Now, before moving on and discussing other terutzim, other answers to this question, it's worth pausing to reflect for a moment on the idea I'm going to present now. We simply cannot push it, fathom the true extent of Moshe Rabbeinu's love for Klal Yisrael. Why? How is how it hard to imagine how much he loved the Jewish people? Because when Moshe said, Mecheni no Erase me from your book, Moshe was aware that the die had been cast and that he'd now be missing from the Torah, at least a part of it. Now, although Moshe didn't know that the removal of his name would only be limited to one parsha, Moshe was aware of the Gemara and Makis. He was aware of the Medesh He was aware of the rule I stated a few moments ago. Moshe knew that even if Hashem would forgive the Jewish people, the curse against himself that he had set in motion would still come true. Nevertheless, Moshe told Hashem that if he wouldn't forgive Klal Yisrael, he had no desire to be mentioned in the Tyra. So Moshe obviously loved the Jewish people a lot. He put himself out there, even though he was on a condition, he was ready to have his name be erased from the Tyra. He didn't know how much or how little, but he was ready to have his name be deleted. Now, chapter 27, verse 20, I'll give you another terrence. Why is Moshe's name missing in Parshat We said over from the Balaturim, and then certainly specifically from the Goyin, why this Parshah? Tell you another answer. Another explanation proceeds as follows. This Parsha, Parsh we're going to see, deals largely with the Big Day Kahuna. Big Day Kahuna means the garments of the Kaihanim and the appointing of the Kaihanim. Now, later on in the Torah, in the book of Amidbar, we're going to find that Kairach who is an evil person, he accuses Moshe of appointing his brother Aaron the Kayan gadol without even Hashem commanding it, without an instruction to do so. So therefore, some want to say that Hashem removed mention of Moshe's name from this entire Parsha to show that when Aaron would be appointed Kayan gadol and receive all these garments that we find in the Parsha that he'd have to wear, Moshe wasn't a factor whatsoever. Moshe was not a cause behind that at all. The decision to appoint Aaron, as high priest, had nothing to do with Moshe's logic or his feelings or familial loyalties or the like. No, it was based solely on Hashem's instructions. So, parshat big day kahuna, garments <laughs> of the kohanim, and certainly kohanim gedolim. That would be what Aaron his brother and the descendants would wear. So Moshe is missing to say, hey, I know what Kairach going to say in the future and what they're going to tine on me, but you should know um, I had nothing to do with it. So that's why Aaron's missing in the Parsha, the Big Day Kahuna, the garments of the Kohanim. That's another approach some of the Mepharshim want to say. Another quick one, another quick one comes from the Rav Zalman at Saldo's Naim Latoira. Why is Moshe missing? Specifically Parsha Tzaveh. So Rav Zalman Serotskin wants to say like this: Judaism, Yiddishkeit, doesn't really celebrate so much the birthdays and the death days of our of our leaders. Certainly, the way other other religions do. We know Christianity makes a big deal about the birthday or the death day of its founder. We're not busy with this. So therefore, to drive home this point that it's not so important, Moshe's name is Dafka missing from the parsha that falls out always on the week of his birth and his death. So says those Torah to answer that question. Okay, let's press on in the Parsha. We're still on chapter 27, verse 20. The Pursuit says, And now you, the you is going on Moshe, shall command the children of Israel. Now this shall command uh, is is the word Tetzaveh, which is the name of the Parsha. Shall command... So the Balaturim points out that the gematria of the word Tetzave, which is a command pertaining to the lighting of the Menorah, is the same gematria, the same numerical equivalent of the words, Nashim Tziva, which means women are commanded. Noshim Tziva, women are commanded, is the same gematria as Tetzave. Why? What is that about? So says the Balaturim, it's to, uh, it's to allude to the idea that women are commanded to light something as well. The Parsha is going on tetzave the Manoira. And over here, it's saying that women are nashim Tzivah, the same gematria as tetzave. Women are commanded. They're commanded to light something as well, namely the Shabbos candles. So that's a remez. That's a hint to the Indian of women lighting something as well. The Shabbos candles, says the Balaturim, the Gamatria found in the Taira. Okay. Now, the pasuk says, "And now you shall command the children of Israel that they shall take for you pure olive oil pressed. The word for pressed is kusis. It should be pressed for illumination to uh, to kindle a lamp continuously." Okay, so far so good. Let's examine this. So there's a gemara in Menachos on eighty six a, and uh, the Medrash Chumah on our parsha under Ois gimel, they explain over here that this parsha requires only that the best first drop of oil that is pressed or squeezed that's the word here pressed cassis the first press squeeze drop from each olive that's what can be used as oil for the illumination of the menorah. only that first press squeeze drop now the remainder of the oil in each olive does not have the same requirement of purity And that could be used in the menachos in the meal offerings, okay? So that's the medrash and the Gemara and menachos. The first drop of oil that's pressed or squeezed, that's cussed from each olive, that's for the oil of the menachos. The rest of the oil in each olive doesn't have to be so perfect and pure. It could be used for the menachos, the meal offerings, Okay, that's the halacha. Question is, what spiritual lessons do these halachos contain? What am I supposed to learn from it? How does this instruct me to be a good Jew? Okay, so Rav Shlema Yosef Zevenzatzal, Rav Zeven points out that the Menorah represents Torah, that's well known, and the Menachas, the meal offerings, symbolized the earning of parnasa, the earning of livelihood, and Gashmi material items in general. Said Rav Zevin, that the cussis, the requirement of pressed and squeezed, it's only a requirement for the manaira, so as to parallel our obligation in Torah. Meaning, when it comes to the efforts that we have to make for accomplishment in Torah, we have to press, we have to squeeze, and we have to crush ourselves to extract our very best. But says Rav Zevin, when it comes to Barnasa, when it comes to making a buck in material items, there's no moral imperative for a Yid to crush himself with effort in the same way. That's not worth making yourself Meshuggah in the Zelba Oifen in the same kind of way. That's Rav Zevin. Before him, the Chassam cipher and the Tyrus Moshe discusses this a little bit. And he agrees with the basic derech of symbolism of the Menorah representing Tyra and Menachos representing Gashmias and Parnasa, material things and trying to make a living. But the Chassam cipher and the Tirus Moshe makes a slightly different point. Says Chesam Seifer, the Torah that we work on or learn or teach and create has to come out as clean and perfect and pure as possible. And something I try to do as much as I can with the Shiuram, for example. The, the learning, the teaching, the way it comes out has to be as, as clean, as Shem and Zoch as possible to make it as easy to understand for others and be on the mark. However, says Chesam Seifer, we are not to demand the same purity and excellence in Agashmias. A Jew must know how to be satisfied with little when necessary, and you must be willing to accept material things that are good enough and imperfect. You know, if you, if you go to a, a Sheer, and you don't understand it, that's not good enough. You go to learn a Blat Gemara, a page of Talmud, you don't understand, it's not good enough. You only learned a, a page of Tyra tonight before you go to bed, or an hour, or whatever you did, even even one page and uh, you don't understand it, it's not good enough. But if you go out to a restaurant and the food is a B but not an A, that is good enough. You go on an airplane, you want an aisle seat and you only got a window, and you, you feel a little squished, that is good enough. For toyer and Ruchnius, it's Nishkanuk; it's never good enough. But you, know, you always want to get as perfect and pure and clean as possible. But for gashmi, it's okay, it's... You know, you have to be able to deal with things that are imperfect, which is symbolic of the menachais the oil for the menachais being it doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be so pure. It's good enough. Okay. That's Chassam from from the Tyrus ma'isha Vaiter. A little further, there's a third Mahalach, a third approach to the moral lessons to be derived from these Halachas. <laughs> Some want to say like this, that the is, the meal offerings, can be compared to an individual or a personal item, but the menayra can be compared to a public entity in as much as it was for the public as its light illuminated the world. The fact that the menayra required only the finest drops of pure oil... It's a rejoinder and a muser to those who aspire to spread Torah to the masses to remind them that their motives must remain pure and l'shem shemayim forever. Okay, let's move forward in the parsha. We're speaking right now about the mitzvah that the B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, are supposed to take pure olive oil and it should be pressed. For illumination to kindle a lamp continuously. So listen to this. Geshma katayra, Tasty stuff. Here we go. The Imre MS, one of the Geri uh, once asked Rav Chaim Brisker the following question. The Medrash Tan on Parshat Tzavit under Oiz Gimel, says that the Menorah in the temple was lit from Rosh Hashanah until the next Rosh Hashanah. That's a Medrash. The Menorah was lit from Rosh Hashanah to the next Rosh Hashanah. It always remained lit. And it would not be extinguished until the following year. However, said the Imre Yemes, you see from this week's Parsha that there's a mitzvah to light the Menorah daily. So how could this halacha be observed if the Menorah would never be extinguished? That's a good question. So the answer of Chaim Brisker, Shusha Yogan Aleinu, gives is based on a ruling of the Rambam. The Rambam writes that a person who adds oil to an existing light, on Shabbos, Yitzchayim is liable for transgressing the prohibition of making a fire on Shabbos. So therefore, what? You see from this halacha that a person can affect a lighting, something can have the din of being a lighting, by adding even a little oil to a pre-existing flame. So, to this is precisely what transpired in the Mishkan and in the Beis HaMikdash. Every day, a small amount of oil was added to the light that was already burning. So according to the halacha, this would still qualify as a lighting and fulfill the mitzvah, even though the Medrash says that the Menorah and the Beis HaMikdash was lit from Rosh Hashanah until the next Rosh Hashanah. Geshmaqa Torah. Okay, very good. So what do we learn from that? Lamaisa, beyond the halacha, a nice terotsim, and a good exchange of Torah between Tzadikim and gadolim. You see from here what? The takeaway from that exchange is that one can affect alighting by adding a little oil to a pre-existing flame. In other words, even if we ourselves are not able to do heroic, enormous acts of Torah and mitzvahs, and even if it seems that our actions pale in comparison to the pre-existing deeds and mitzvahs and accomplishments of others, if we add a little mitzvah light to a pre-existing large flame, it is still deemed precious to a Baruch Hu and it still has a status of being lighting. Hashem still appreciate it. Small amounts count too. Okay. Now, it says in chapter 28, verse 1, Now you, again, we're talking about Moshe here, but it doesn't say his name. Now you, bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother. Rav Meir of Premishlan, one of the great Hasidish rabbis, famous person certainly in the Hasidish lore, explains his possek in a very unique fashion. Like many brothers, Moshe and Aaron each had a different temperament and a different nature. Moshe, by comparison, was somewhat of a recluse and pensive and reflective. For him, that was a little bit more of his natural comfort zone by comparison compared to his brother. And we might suggest maybe that's a factor in part which led him to seek work as being a shepherd. On the other hand, Aaron's nature led him to be more occupied with people. So which approach is best? Well, the answer is that neither temperament is inherently superior. However, said Rav Meir Premishlan, if you're going to be a manek thrall you're going to be a leader in the Jewish people. Because of that, Hashem wanted for Moshe to incorporate a bit more of Aaron's style into his own. Therefore, Hashem conveys to Moshe the message of this verse. The Pesach says, now you, speaking to Moshe, bring near to yourself, Aaron your brother. He says in Drush, the message of this verse, bring near to yourself, Aaron your brother, means that Moshe should take Aaron's trait of gregariousness and talkativeness and, so, and his, social, his social sensibilities and incorporate it into his being a little bit more the lesson here is that a leader in Klal Yisrael cannot remain overly separate from the people. Even if you have a natural inclination to be more private and a little bit more reclusive, the nature of a manik B'Yisrael is to be accessible. And if it's not easy for you, then you're going to do it even if it's hard for you. Okay. Now, chapter 28, verse 2 says, You shall make vestments of sanctity. Parshat places great emphasis on Clothing and we find the importance of clothing reflected throughout the entirety of Torah and the Code of Jewish Law. Our Parsha deals a lot with clothing, and we find the importance of clothing throughout the entire Tyran and Shachnarach. A lot of halachas. Question Was it always supposed to be this way? Why is it this way? So the Malbim says the answer is no, it didn't always have to be this way. Zokhta Malbim. At the time of creation, it was Hashem's original intention that the goof, the human body, the goof would be the garment and it would be the clothing for the neshama, for the soul. The goof was supposed to be the garment and clothing for the soul. In fact, says the Malbim, that's why Adam and Chava were originally in a state of undress, of nakedness in the Garden of Eden in Gan Eden. Look in Book of Bereshach, chapter 2, verse 25. They were naked, they didn't have clothes. However, says the Malbim, when people began to sin and take the guf, the body, seriously and view it as a matter of critical importance in and of itself and not merely as housing for the soul, that's when Hashem required that we put a covering of what was originally intended to be only a covering. That's what the Malbim says that's when clothes became important because we started to view the body as an ichor. So therefore we needed a covering for the thing that was only supposed to be a covering to begin with. The Shaloh Kadosh and Shara Oisius adds a little bit more. He echoes this idea and I saw, Taka, that he writes that the garments that one wears are the lavush for the body while the body is the lavush for the soul. The Shaloh and Shara Oisius describes it in that fashion. The clothes you wear, that's the lavush of the body. And the body is the lavush, the garment, the garment and the covering for the soul. Okay. Interesting. Something to bear in mind as we go through the uh, the Tyra. Sometimes people say, "Oh, is the Tyra closed-minded?" People talk about that. Sometimes I'll be out traveling, meeting people who aren't Jewish, say, yeah, "I heard the Tyra is closed-minded." Well, if if closed-minded is uh is C L O S E, the Tyra is not closed-minded. If closed-minded is C L O T H E S closed, meaning the stuff you wear, if it's closed-minded, yeah, the Tyra is closed-minded in terms of the clothing you wear. It's not closed-minded. The Torah expands your mind and uh, is very open to everything that adds to the value of a person and doesn't turn him into a behemoth. Okay, let's go weiter. So we're saying over here in chapter 28, verse 2, You shall make vestments of sanctity for Aaron, your brother, for glory and splendor. Okay, now Parshat is going to speak at length about the clothing of the Kohanim, my family, the Kohanim, and the Kohanim G'daylem, but in truth, there are messages contained here for everyone about the importance of their clothing. A yid, a Jew, must always dress himself or herself with good taste and with modesty, with snius, The Torah hashkafa, the Torah perspective is that our clothing should always be speak and speak and reflect our refinement and our kedusha, our holiness. And our clothing should never be intended to arouse jealousy. Can you? I I can't relate to this. I mean, I, I just dress kind of in in black and white and kind of businessy in suits and stuff like this. But some people actually wear clothes on purpose to arouse jealousy in others, or some people nebuch nebuch dress in a way designed with the hope to provoke the baser instincts in others. So that's not what we're supposed to do. Okay. Now it's interesting if you look uh, in halacha. It's very interesting that Rav Nisim Karelet Shlita writes Lehalacha in Evan Ezer. If you get in touch with me outside of the Sheer director at jln.org, I'll give you in his Halacha works, the Marmah of is often art, if you want to look up on the spot. But Hagoyen Rav Nisim Karelet Shlita rules Lehalacha. He says the Halacha is that according to Halacha, it's prohibited for a man, for a guy, to provide his wife or his daughter with money to buy clothing if her purchase of clothing will in any way violate the Halachas of Tzniyus or create a Michshol, a stumbling block for others. And this is something concerning which every married man or father, a Torah person, should be aware. Very interesting idea. So I'm just giving you the source. If you're a married man, you're not supposed to give your wife or your kids money, certainly your daughter's money. If they're going to buy clothing, that's going to violate halach or tznius, or create a distraction or a for others. And uh, if, uh, if you bring this up in the house and uh, people don't like it, blame it on Rabbi Bregman. I'd say, you heard it from me. And if they complain to me, I'll say, I got it from Hagoyen Rav Nisim Karelich Lita, Shlita, Chut Shani, and Ebena Ezer, Simen Chof Aleph. And uh, they can blame it on him. Contact him in Eretz and discuss the sugya with him. But that's something to be aware. Okay, weiter. Now, the we're speaking a lot in our parsha about the Koyen Godel, the high priest. The Shaloh HaKadosh says that the Koyen Godel, the high priest, was come at, like the second coming of Adam HaRishon. Adam Arishon, Adam, the first person, says the Shalah, the Koyen Godel, was like, like, like a second coming in the world of Adam. How so? Says the Shalah the Kayin Gadol. his task was to fix the damage created by Adam and return the world to how it was before he and Chava sinned in the Garden of Eden. His job was to rectify and be mesakin and fix up all the the, the chatoyim and all the damage and all, and all the injury to the world that Adam and Chava did with their sin. That's part of the job, mystically, of the Kayin Gadol. says the Shalah. Now, building on that theme, the Malbim demonstrates how each of the Kayan Gadol's garments brought atonement for certain historically important sins. For example, according to the Shalah, the Khaishin, the breastplate of the Kayan Godal that he wore in front of him on his chest, it could repair the spiritual impurity and damage that was wrought by the Nachash, the snake, the Nachash HaKadmoini, the snake, in the Garden of Eden. And in fact, the the Malbim proffers that that's the reason why the word Choyshen, which is spelled Ches, uh, Shin, Nun, and Nachash, which means snake, are the same letters. Choyshen, the breastplate, is Ches, Shin, Nun. Nachash is Nachash, which means a snake, is Nun, Shin, Ches. They're comprised of the same letters. The Malbim says why? The answer is because the Chayshin, the breathway, the Chayyin Gadol, the Chayyin could help fix up the spiritual impurity and the tumma and the damage that was brought by the Nachash. So that Malbim fits very nice with that Shlach Kaddish. It's important to know. It's also important to understand the Chayyin Gadol, it's not just uh, an important Kayin, it was uh, working at the base of Mikdash, facilitating the Korban It's deep, 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 Amuk, oid, very deep in Yonim of how he was uh, supposed to accomplish, in a mystical sense, certain certain tikkunim and rectify many, many, many different kind of things. Okay, let's go weiter. So, chapter 28, verse 6. It says over here, They shall make the aphoid, the aphoid a work of thought. The aphoid, one of the garments... Of the of the of the of the Kayin was a, a work of thought Maase Chayshev work of thought. Why is the aphoid called a work of thought? What is that about? So the Kli provides a fascinating but simple explanation. The Gemara in Zvachim, it's on Pei, it's Dav Pei Chesamit base, tells us that the Eifod atones for the sin of Avodah idolatry. The Begadim, the garments of the Kayin, Kayin gadol certainly Kayin gadol atone for certain sins. The aphide, which is one of his garments, atones for the sin of idolatry. Also, you should know, says the Kliyakar. There's a Gemara Kedushin. The Gemara Kedushin is daf, uh, mem, amadala, 40a. Says that a Jew does not get punished for just thinking of doing an avera, a sin, unless he actually does it. But with one exception, avaydazara. Again, let me repeat says kliakar we have a gemara in zvachim on 88b that the aphoid of the king Gadol atones for the sin of idolatry number two there's a gemara in kedushan on 40a that says a jew doesn't get punished for thinking of doing a sin unless he actually does it but there's one exception idolatry if you actually think of doing idolatry you get punished even if you don't do it so how does this answer up the question why is this aphoid garment called a work of thought why so taken together, this provides our explanation. The avod is called a work of thought because it atones for the sin of idolatry, which can be violated by even just a mere work of thought. Kishmak from the Kliakr. Good stuff. Now, one important addition is in order. Though a Jew is not ordinarily punished for merely thinking of committing a sin, The Gemara in Kedushan on 81a quotes Rabbi Akiva's position that a person who desired or intended to commit a sin is still in need of atonement. See, you hear the idea? So these Gemaras have to go together. You have to understand that even though the Gemara says in Kedushin on 40a, you don't normally get punished for thinking of doing an Avera unless you actually do it with the exception of idolatry. You have to know Kedushin 81a, the sheet of Rabbi Akiva, that a person who desired or intended to commit a sin, you still need to do tshuva, you still need a kapara, you still need atonement. Just because Hashem is not going to slam you for what you thought of doing, as a mean, you don't need to clean yourself up. If you took your mind, the mind Hashem gave you with intelligence and wisdom and Chachma and Seichel and to, to help the Jewish people and spread Torah and do for the world and he used it to try to figure out how you can rebel against him, you still need atonement according to Rabbi Akiva, even if Hashem wouldn't be actually punishing you for the thing that you thought of doing. Okay? We're halfway through the shir. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You're listening to J Root Radio, 97.5 FM, and our weekly shir in the Parsha. Okay, let's press on in the Parsha. But before we go further, I think we should all collectively thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu, thank God, thank Hashem. For giving us such a geschmack of Torah. What an amazing Torah with such insight, such brilliance, such beauty. I mean, if you can't get excited for this, I don't know, go to a doctor, check in at ER. Maybe you don't have a pulse. It's the best thing in the world. Amazing, amazing Torah. Thank you, Hashem. And I wanted to put that in there before we go on, because I cannot go on any further without thanking publicly, Hashem, for such a Torah. Can I know Okay, let's go through in the Parsha. So, uh, chapter 28, verses 6 to 9, that's what I want to focus on. It's going to speak more about the aphoid and uh, and the names of the, the B'nai Yisrael, the sons of Israel that are placed on it, etc. If you're not sure all of these garments, what I'm referring to, I'm using these names, Echyshen and Aphoid, this and that. Look in your chumashim, an art scroll Chumash, look online, authentic Torah websites. You'll, you'll see what I'm referring to and the more you'll appreciate what the garments are and were and look like and what they'll be again in the time of Mashiach and beyond, the more Gishmak you'll have in it. Let's go further. The Aphoid, with its accompanying names of the 12 tribes, it was placed on the back of the Kayin gadol. Now, in contrast, the chayshin, which we said before, was the breastplate of the kind of that went on his chest, that went on the front side of him. Why? The ephoid had the names of the twelve tribes. That was on the back. And the chayshin, the breastplate, was on the front uh, the front side of him. What is this about? So I often say you can't have an achsam seifer in a Wednesday night parashashir, and this week is no different. Listen to what achsam seifer has to say. He explains how the placement of each of these items was precise and appropriate. Both the ephod and the chayshin, both these garments, contained the names of the 12 tribes. But the chayshin also had, the chayshin, the breastplate, also had the names of the avois, the patriarchs inscribed on it. Now the ephod and the names of the tribes, those go on the back of the kayengaral, says Chassam Seifer, to represent the idea Goes on the back to represent the idea that Kalal Yisrael, the Jewish people, follows after HaKadosh Baruch Hu. However, the names of the Avais appear only on the Khaishan in front of the kayan Gadol because, says Ksam Soifer, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov took the lead and set the example for us in how we are to serve Hashem and he also points out moreover their names belong out in front because they oftentimes were able to do, to do what Hashem wanted to be done without being formally commanded in a mitzvah they were out in front so to speak in terms of discerning what Hashem desired and as such their placement in front is totally totally appropriate okay Now, more interesting, Tyra, on the garments. Here we go. Aaron shall carry their names, chapter 28, verse 12. Aaron shall carry their names, meaning of the tribes, before Hashem on both his shoulders as a remembrance. Okay, good. Aaron carried the names of the tribes on both his shoulders. What is the symbolic meaning of this verse? So the Mayim Chaim says that this is the trait of a leader. How so? Just like a father carries a, a, a child on his shoulders to protect him from things that can harm him below, let's say broken glass, or, or maybe uh, uh, in these recent days, I've carried one of my kids on my, uh, up in my arms or on my shoulders because I, I don't want them to, they, they could slip on the ice and the snow and all of this. So too, like a father carries a child to protect him from things that can hurt him down there, so too, says, Ber mayim chayim, a leader in Kalal Yisrael has to do that for his flock and protect them from harm. So says the Savior, the Bar-Mayim Aaron had the names of the tribes up on both his shoulders regarding that beged, regarding that particular bagged, uh in order to represent that that's what a leader is supposed to do. I'd like to suggest for you a different answer from myself. Just as a father might carry his child on his shoulders so that the kid can have a better vantage point and see things otherwise unattainable to him. Isn't that what, isn't that what a parent does? Sometimes you lift a kid up so they could see things that they otherwise can't see. A, a sight, a this, a that. You, we do it all the time. So, so too, I want to say like this, so to Amarek B'Yisrael, a leader in Klal Yisrael, his job is to lift up the Jewish people to show them heights in Ruchnius, in spirituality, and Torah living and also in Kiddushem Shamayim Shemayim that are here to now unattainable to them because that's what the job of a Torah leader is by showing a Jew what it looks like and what it could look like and what's available out there lifting them up, showing them a vista in Torah and Ruchni as they haven't been able to achieve or see yet for themselves if you show it to a Jew a Jew is going to want to have it and desire it and aspire to it very, very, very much so that's the Inyan over there. Okay. Now, I'd like to share with you over a little bit about digging deeper, and we'll have a little ma'ar shah, uh, some more midrashim, moiridikirayd, svasemis, good stuff. Chapter 28, verse 15. This posik, speaking over here again about the chayshon, the breastplate worn by the kohen gadol. Now, there's a Gemara in Mesechesh Shabbos on Kuf Lamid Tes 139a, that relates. That Aaron merited to wear the in the breastplate, because he felt gladness in his heart that Hashem had selected Moshe to lead the redemption from Egypt. Despite the fact that he, Moshe, the older uh, the older brother, excuse me, the fact that Aaron, he, the older brother, had already been leading Klal Yisrael in Egypt for decades. The Gemara says in Shabbos that Aaron got to wear the chayshon over his heart And because he was happy in his heart, Hashem's picked Moshe, even though that Aaron himself was older and he'd already been leading the Jewish people for many, many years in his brother's absence. Now, the Shah says that the joy that Aaron experienced at this news that his brother was selected was complete. It was total. He was totally, totally happy and basimcha at this news. Okay. However, that's a Marsha, but you should know there's a Medrash that seems to contradict that account more than a little bit. The Medrash says in Yalkut Shemani, uh in Parshas Vayeshev, if you want the exact source, get in touch with me. I'll show you the exact place in the Yalkut Shemayni. The Medrash says that if Aaron had known that Hashem would write in the Torah, that Aaron would rejoice in his heart when he went out to greet Moshe after the long separation and after Moshe was elevated to the position of leader... If Aaron had known that, and it'll be written in the Torah, the Medjur says that Aaron would have gone out to greet Moshe with drums and with dancing. So the question is, which is correct? Is it, as the Yalkut Shimoni says, that Aaron seemingly was capable of feeling even more joy for Moshe and greater expression of joy? Or is it like the Marsha says that he wasn't capable of experiencing more? So I want to answer the question like this. There's a Midrashim that explain, you can find this in Vayikra Rabba and in Rus Rabba, the midrash says that had Reuven known that the Tyra would praise him for trying to rescue Yosef, that he would have carried Yosef on his shoulders and returned him to his father, to Yaakov. Now in a reference to that episode, Svasemis explains that Reuven had assumed That the act of chesed, the act of kindness he performed here, he figured it's a private action. It's just me and my brother. It's a private thing. Says Fasemis. Ruvain hadn't realized the epic, cosmic consequences of his deed. Had Ruvain known that his action would be recorded in the Torah and thus become an eternal lesson for Klal Yisrael, he would have invested even more of himself in that action. I would like to suggest that the same dynamic applies to Aaron and our Parsha as well. Yes, his joy was total at learning of Moshe's ascendant role, and his emotion was complete according to what he believed to be his capabilities. The words of the Marsha, in other words, are 100% correct. However, in truth... Aaron was capable of experiencing even more elation on behalf of his brother as the Yalkut Shimoni relates had he realized perhaps the epic cosmic consequences of what was transpiring here in this episode. Okay, I'd like to share with you coming up in a moment an al-sheikh, which is, which is off the charts. You couldn't make this up if you tried. Here we go. Chapter 28, verse 33. The Pusik says, You shall make on its hem pomegranates, and on its hem all around, and golden bells between them, all around. Okay, so the Torah commands that a pomegranate like design should be added to the hem of the Coyangatel's robe, and then with golden bells then appearing between them. Okay, bottom line, what does that look like? So in actuality, what that looked like was a pomegranate, then a bell, then a pomegranate, and then a bell. And these items alternated on the hem of the Kain guttles robe. These items alternated, and between every two pomegranates, there was a bell. How do I know? Rashi says so. Look it up right there. Between every two pomegranates, there was a bell. What did it look like? Pomegranate, a bell, and a pomegranate, and a bell. Rashi says, between every two pomegranates, there was a, a bell. That's what the Pusik wants. That's what Rashi says. So A great question to ask over here will go like this. Why does the Torah describe the pattern as pomegranates with bells between them when it just as easily could have described the design as bells with pomegranates between them? Why does the Torah describe it as pomegranates with bells between, not bell to pomegranates between? That's the question that the al-Sheikh asks, and he provides us with a terrific answer. Listen to what he says. There's a lesson to be learned here about the virtue of silence. Yeah, silence, shtika, something we, a lot of us could work on, all of us in fact. The bell represents a talkative person and his mouth as if it's open and constantly making noise. And the clapper, which is the formal name of that little dangly stick that clings around in there, the clapper inside the bell, it's similar to a tongue wagging at a mouth to and fro. It's interesting. So the bell represents a mouth making a lot of noise and the, and the clapper inside making the noise. That's the tongue, says the Alshach. By contrast, the round pomegranate represents a silent, closed mouth. So by describing the design as two pomegranates with a bell in between them, the Torah is giving us the proper ratio of silence to speech. Silence to speech, the proper ratio should be two to one. That is the way a person is supposed to be. Not that for each moment of silence, there's two of chit-chat. No, for the opposite. For for every two moments of silence, there should be one Of talking. And in fact, this is exactly what the Gemara says in Megilladav. Yurches Amar Aleph 18a. The Gemara there says something very similar. If a word is worth one slaw, one coin, one slaw coin, then silence is going to be worth two. You hear? Silence two, a word one. That's a Gemara. And the Al-Sheikh is bringing out this point over here from the pattern of the bells and the pomegranates and how the Torah describes it. Kishmaka talk. Now, while on the topic of speech, it's known that the best way for a person to keep his speech clean and pure is to use it for holy things. Use your speech for holy things. For limerah Torah, for studying tyra, for learning tyra, for sharing tivray Torah, for prayer, for speaking words of kindness. And that's why it says, Amir, two verses later, Chapter 28, verse 35, in the same passage causing the bells and pomegranates, its sound shall be heard when he enters the sanctuary before Hashem. The pomegranates and bells which allude to speech should be directed towards the context of Kedusha. Now, Agav, as we're passing through on this point, I'd like to quickly mention that we see this idea reflected in the Pesach Haggadah. The order at the Seder, Everybody knows if you have a say there, you open got a got It's karpas, yachatz, and then the magid. I'm not going to sing the whole song for you. Kadesh, yachatz, karpas, yachatz. But that's what it is. Karpas, yachatz, ma- magid. Karpas, yachatz, magid. Why? Why is that the order? So the Toldner Rebbe, the Rebbe, wants to say like this: that the letters of the word karpas stand for the words klal, rishain, pe, sissaim. Karpas stands for klal rishain, which means first rule. Peh means mouth shut. First rule, mouth shut. Klal Rishoyim, That's Karpas. It says the Tel but that's what Karpas stands for. And then knowing that, you can continue with Yachatz and Magid, which literally means cut your talking in half. Yachatz, Magid, means cut your talking in half. But you can only do that once you understand. Klal Rishayim, pesasaim. First rule, mouth shut. I think it fits very Gishmak with the Gemara and Megillah. And the Alshech I wanted to put in that, uh, that Vart from the Tolner Rebbe there, I thought it fits very, very nicely. Now, in chapter 28, verse 35, the Pasik says, "Its sound shall be heard when he enters the sanctuary before Hashem and when he leaves. Regarding the bells and pomegranates on the Kohen Gadol's robe, the Torah says, its sound shall be heard. That's what it said. Its sound shall be heard when he enters and when he leaves. Its sound shall be heard. Okay, the Torah says it should be heard. Rav at Zatzal, Rav Mordechai Gifter, the Telder of Sheshiva, points out that owing to the bells and pomegranates on his garment, every movement of the Kohen Gadol made and produced a sound. Think about it. He had the bells and the pomegranate. Whenever he would move, it would make a sound. Everything he did had a result. It said, Rav Gifter, this is a powerful lesson for leaders and for lay people alike, regular people, leaders, and everything in between. A Jew, said Rav Gifter, should be focused on productivity and obtaining results. All of our time should be spent on activities that are meaningful. A Jew, said Rav Gifter, has too much to accomplish in life to afford that you have wasted movements which make no sound. You make no sound. You can't go through life making no sound. Everything you do should make a splash for Kedusha and for Helikite and Ruchnius. You're not supposed to be sitting in this world making no sound. Everything you should do should make a purposeful sound and be heard. Okay, we have about 10 minutes left. Let's see how much more ground we can cover in the Parsha. Chapter 28, verse 36. It says, you shall make a headplate of pure gold. Okay? The head plate of the kain Godel is called a tzitz. Tzitz. Maybe you heard of a, a halachic authority called a tzitz Eliezer. That's the word, tzitz. That's the head plate of the kain Godel. Okay. Now, you might notice that word tzitz is very similar to something else that you, you might know even more called tzitzis. Tzitz, Tzitzis. Tzitz. Connection is striking. What's the connection between the two? So let's get a little bit mystical here. Let's get a little bit deep. So if you look in the safri, says that the word sitzis means to look at something in a focused way. The word sitzis means to look at something in a focused way. Now, it's beyond the scope of this shear for me to delve into it and explain more, and certainly in the little bit of time we have remaining, but sitzis are deeply connected to the faculty of sight. If you learn up the words of Chazal and the Roshaynim, you see that tzitzis are connected to the faculty of seeing, of sight, and being able also to perceive something which isn't readily noticeable. Now, knowing this safri and the etymology of the word provides us a great clue that the tzitzis of the coin godl must also have been connected to seeing. But the question is how so? How is the tzitz of the coin godl on his head plate connected to seeing? What's that about? So I think you find the answer in the Zayar, in the Zayar, a Kaddish, in Parshs Vayakel. Something fascinating over there. It says it's written that when a Jew would look at the Kohen Gadol Tzitz, you'd be a Jew, Bisman, Shabbos Hamikdash, Hayakoyim, in the time of the Holy Temple. You would look at the Kohen Gadol Tzitz, It would reveal to the Kohen Gadol, the High Priest, the character and spiritual level of the Jew who was looking at it. So once again, you see how the word sits and sits is, is connected to the idea of being able to see something in a focused way and something which is otherwise not readily visible. And I'll tell you the truth, it's really fascinating and frightening to realize that the deeds we do, both mitzvahs and averas are actually embedded on our bodies, not just our souls. Most people understand. Certainly people with amun and betachin, people who believe in the Torah, people who know from the Torah, they understand. I guess if I do a mitzvah, God forbid the opposite, it makes a noise, it makes an impression on my soul. But the truth is that mitzvahs and averas are also embedded on our bodies to the point that a person of great spiritual sensitivity, like a guy can perceive them, and the Makar, the source for this idea is a posic in Mishlei, the book of Mishlei, chapter 7, verse 1, the posic says, my child, heed my words and store up my commandments with yourself. How can a person store the mitzvahs with himself? The answer is that by performing the mitzvahs, they become indelibly imprinted on a Jew's body, albeit in an invisible fashion. And in the mystical writings of Tyra, you find this idea discussed frequently. For example, it says in the Zayar, in, in, uh, in Sefer Vayikra, that a tzaddik has his merits embedded in his bones. It's a Zayar. I've also seen from Svasemis and Parshish Boy. I can give you the year if you reach out to me directly. You can look up Tsvasemis inside. He speaks about this notion often and throughout his writings that a mitzvah, albeit completely spiritual, makes a tangible imprint on the physical world. It's a big theme in his G'savim, in the writings of Sfas Emes. So it's a G'shmach idea, very worth knowing, something from a a mystical taste on the Parsha. Okay, the hour is getting late, and a lot of the other ideas that I'd like to say over with you tonight will probably uh, pass the allotment of time we have for our radio program. So... I'll share with you one more. Let's come from the Chassam Sofra al Torah, And the, you can't go wrong with that. And we'll, we'll be Messiah and we'll conclude with this. Chapter 28, verse 36. The Pesach says, You shall make a headplate of pure gold, and you shall engrave on it, engrave like a signet ring, holy to Hashem. Okay. So on this tzitz, it's supposed to be written and engraved on there, like a signet ring, holy to Hashem. So Chesam Seifer wants to make an interesting observation from here. The Gemar in Erechin, Daftaz Zion Amar Aleph states that the tzitz atones for those who are brazen and stubborn. While these can sometimes be worthwhile traits, inasmuch as they can enable a Jew to resist the pressure, to assimilate, or follow a path for evil... At the same time, they can also lead to our ruination or even land us in Gehenna, God forbid. There's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos that says the same thing. That a person who, uh, who is basically brazen, they end up in Gehenna. So says Chesam Seifer, by wearing the phrase Kodesh LaHashem, Holy to Hashem, on his head, we are supposed to learn from the Kayin Gadol that a Jew must commit to only use his stubbornness for sanctified purposes. So yes, the Gemara says that the tzitz atones for those who are brazen and stubborn, but by putting holy to Hashem on our forehead, it's saying that we're supposed to direct our brazenness and stubbornness directed for Kedusha to resist assimilation, resist the pressure to become more physical than spiritual, and we need to direct even traits that could be challenging to the service of a Baruch Hu. I thank you very much for listening to tonight's share. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You've been listening to J Root Radio, 97.5 FM in Brooklyn and beyond. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, uh, just send me an email, director at jeln.org. I'd be happy to send you a printed version of either last year's shear or tonight's Torah in time for Shabbos by email if you simply request it. Um, and I wish everybody a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Shabbos. Thank you so much for being here with me, and God willing, next Wednesday night, 10 o'clock, we'll be back together with Hashem's help, learning His amazing, amazing, delicious Torah. Have a beautiful Shabbos, Kaidish. Thank you for your time. Kaltav.